listening to episode 279 of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. My name's Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne, as we continue our look at the Netflix horror series, The Haunting of Hill House. And as we've been saying for the last few weeks, this is going to be it for a while with Hill House, because we've got Travelers coming up next week. Right. Unless we can. I think. No. Well. It's just going to be a while. Yeah. We just have to get over it. Go binge it and come back and listen later. Well, and I think that's certainly what I'm going to do. Watch the final three episodes and and get a handle on what's going on. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about them one at a time the way we always do. But uh, Travelers, dude, can't wait. Yep, yep. Very exciting. Wait for this for a while. I wish that maybe they would, you know, had waited three more weeks. But, you know, we got to do what we got to do. Well, that would have been nice. And the other thing is there doesn't seem to be a lot of information that I've been able to find, for instance, what the title of this first episode is going to be. I know that Eric McCormack is directing it. I don't know how many episodes are going to be in the season. I don't know how, well, I do know how long they're going to be. They're going to be standard 42, 43 minutes. I do know that. But yeah, so. uh, Yeah, right. Because it's just Netflix now, right? Yeah, just Netflix. And going to drop the whole thing all at once, and I guess we'll, yep. uh, we'll just have to wait and see. So, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, um, we'll get. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew that, and I, I had realized and thought about that before. But just to hear you enunciating it, it's just like kind of weird. How you know we're going to have travelers all at once? I don't know if I'm going to have the uh, the willpower to not watch them all at once, uh, dude. Look, come on. Now, <laughs> is that really even a question? No, no, not not at all. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's going to be hard pressed for me as well. I've I've done a pretty good job, I think, with Hill House, but I don't know. This is freaking travelers, you know. All right. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, if you guys want to check in with some episode feedback, sci-fi TV rewatch at gmail dot com is how you can reach us via email. Go to the website, leave a voicemail with the leave voicemail tab. Record your own audio clip if you'd like. Send it to us as an attachment. Tweet us at Sci-Fi TV Rewatch or consider joining the Facebook group and get into the discussions there. All right, now um, let's go ahead and start with the tip of the week. And for me, I was going to go with a new Sci-Fi Network series called Night Flyers, but I got some new information today just uh, maybe an hour or so ago that trisha helfer of lucifer and more perhaps more importantly battlestar galactica is starting a podcast which will be available tomorrow that will be uh, tuesday i believe and she and her co-host are going to be podcasting about Battlestar Galactica as this is the anniversary of its airing. And they're going to start with the three night mini series and then move on to season one. I don't know if they're going to do every episode. I don't know if they're going to do Mm. every season, but it might be time uh, for a rewatch. Well, that's what (laughs) I said to Michael. I'm definitely going to be rewatching. And and to be honest, I've rewatched, the three night miniseries at least three times with the intention of doing a full rewatch and then i always get sidetracked and i've really never gotten into season one past the first episode 33 so i guess we will see so that's my tip of the week it's uh, trisha helfer's battlestar galactica anniversary podcast so cool. i guess find it on itunes probably wherever else you can get your podcasts yeah. all right what do you got so I have like a couple pages left of this pretty cool book. It's taken me a while because I've been just reading kind of piecemeal. But it's called The World of Ice and Fire, The Untold History of Westeros and the Game of Thrones. So it's really this, like I actually got my brother-in-law this book um, <clears throat> like a couple years ago when it came out. And I was in... Uh, back in your stomping grounds, the old Lock Raven Public Library. And okay. uh, I um, I saw it on the shelf. I'm like, you know, I've always wanted to read that book. You know, I got it from my brother-in-law. I wanted to check it out. So I got it. And uh, so, like, for the past, you know, I've I had, you know, re, uh, renewed it, like, now four times. So I'm, I'm going on, like, 
12 weeks I've had this book. But it's a big book and it's left. But it's absolutely gorgeous. And the pictures in there are awesome. And what it is is it tells you a lot of the, as it says, the history of the world of Game of Thrones. So it goes back through, you know, like you always talk about the, the first men and the Andals. You always hear when they, you know, they crown a new king, king of the, the first man and the Andals and all that. You're like, what does that mean? You know, so they talk about those things. And uh, and then they, you know, went through all the, the um, monarchs of Westeros up till, um, you know, this, this book is prepared, purportedly written during the reign of Robert Baratheon. So a lot of the stuff that's happened in the books hasn't historically really happened yet. Um, so uh, it was just really, really cool. And the, the artwork is unbelievable. And it's just, uh, and the the way it's, they, they've made it, so it's like the hardcover, it's almost like, it's not a leather bound book, but it seems like it's got that really soft ex- uh, feel to the outside and just a great book. So if you are a Game of Thrones fan, well, you probably already bought it if you're a Game of Thrones fan. But if you are a Game of Thrones fan who hasn't already gotten this book, uh, throw it up on your uh, your list because it's it's excellent. Well, how uh, funny is that? Are you familiar with Night Flyers, the, the show I was going to use as my tip of the week? Not at all. Okay. Well, it's based on a 1980 novella by... George R. R. Martin. Oh, oh, I do want to watch. I remember. See, ah, okay. Has that started already? It has. And what they're doing is they're running episodes five straight days. I think Sunday through Thursday over a two-week period. So ten episodes. I've only seen the first one, and it was pretty good. I, you know, I'm not sure whether I'm going to keep going just because of a time crunch but it was pretty good and that that was why i was going to use that as my tip of the week but it's uh on sci-fi i guess they're i'm not sure this might even be week two now i don't know if you're interested in i'm I'm already i've already missed five you're saying yeah something like that all right uh, one thing i want to do before we get to the discussion of the episode is go back to last week because Fred had something in his feedback that I had in my notes and I never really got to bring it up. I just got lost in the shuffle, I guess, but it is kind of important because he brings up the last few seconds that Nellie's alive as she's hanging on the rope. And, and as Fred says in his, his feedback in the last few seconds of her life, gasping on the rope, she thinks back to those moments she appeared to herself and Fred, if I read you correctly, that's for you a vote for the psychological rather than supernatural. And I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I guess for me, I start thinking like, all right, take somebody like Nostradamus. If we believe that Nostradamus could see the future in some cases – Is that a supernatural ability or is that a psychological? So I I feel like Nell essentially seeing her death some 20 years later, I still see that as supernatural, but I certainly can see why you might want to call it psychological. But how, as a child, how could could she have seen that? What do you mean? How could she have seen herself? Like when she was a child, she saw the bent neck lady and the, well, right. she is she the bent neck lady. Well, right. She didn't understand what she was seeing. Right. But how, how could it be psychological for her to see herself when she was a child? And when she was a child, she saw herself unless, right. you know, there's a different like time is, I, I, I don't know, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Well, you're saying it's supernatural. It's, it's 100% supernatural in my, in my opinion. Okay. Then you and I agree. Yeah. Okay, so, all right, uh, well, let's go ahead and get to this episode, and then we'll, you know, Fred's got some more feedback about episode seven of season one titled Eulogy, written by Sharice Castro-Smith, who I I found is primarily a playwright, but she did write an episode of the Fox TV series The Exorcist, which is one of those shows I just never really got around to seeing, and as always, directed by Mike Flanagan. So, this is an interesting episode, you know. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's obviously dialogue rich, as most of them are. We do get a lot of reveals, but there are a lot of recurring themes. And the one I can't decide whether I like it 
or I don't want to say hate, that's too strong, right. but the whole idea with Hugh, well, I can fix this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you feel about that whole, he can fix anything? Yeah. Um, I mean, even the first time that I saw it, I felt that that maybe was a little trite, but it does lead up to a great moment at the end when the forever house is in pieces and he starts saying i can f-, and he like stops well yes. the, the first time you know like he realizes like <laughs> I well can't I, I can't yeah i totally can't like you know so i, I think the, the line itself i've found maybe tiresome until the end there but it's a great line in showing his what him as a character um, because he refuses to walk away from this thing, which I've been, you know, encouraging him to do for, for weeks now, you know, like burn this house down, you know, just do get what you can, like from, you know, with, I don't know, like go on a week's vacation, have someone go in and torch the place or something and uh, get the insurance money and, and call it a quits because, you know, I, I don't know what more he needs to convince himself that this place is just bad, bad. Well, and I'm, I'm really, again, torn how I see him because I agree with everything you just said about what he should have done. Obviously, the Forever House is representative of the family at large and that as it is in pieces, so is the family in pieces and uh, you know, the damage to Hill House itself is sort of a precursor to the damage that the Crane family is going to feel a- a- as their lives go on. Nice. I like that ex-English teacher. But, but, yeah, but, <laughs> but I also go back to that scene when he's talking to Olivia, and, and of course she's dead at this point, and he says, we were pretty good role models. You know, the last few days don't count. Right. And... I understand what you just said about the fact that they should have just packed up and left. And I agree with that. But up to that point, like Olivia, uh, up to those last few days, you get the feeling that their five children saw a mother and father that really loved each other, Mm -hmm. loved their kids. Right. Um, You know, basically they had a job where they were around their kids all the time. They, uh, you know, I mean, Stevie kind of wanted to work with his daddies at, at that age when, sure. when you know, he really right. wants to do that. So as He'll parents, get over that soon enough. <laughs> yeah. As parents, it's difficult for me to criticize anything uh, up until those last few days. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I'm just like, there's so much crazy stuff. <clears throat> like I'm saying, if nothing else. What he can fall back on is he saw his wife standing in front of a window that just completely shattered, and then he ducked, and he looked up, and his wife was gone, and the window was fine, and then his wife kept disappearing around corners, and now there's black mold, and he finds a body. I'm like, dude, <laughs> you know, like even the cop is like, is this place haunt-? So obviously, locally, it's like got like a, it's like a, the, the creepy house. No one's going to buy this place, Hugh. Like, why did you buy it? Oh, well, probably because no one wanted to buy it before. So you got like a really excellent price on it. Right. And just like Hugh, he's like probably thought, oh, well, look at this. Well, we can fix this place up. I can fix it. I can, you know, and everything. It's just everything. You know, like it, it kind of is just. Him try it, it, you know, starts off with. I, I, I get that this is like their job. Sometimes you just got to walk away. Well, he even says to Olivia at one point, as they're recognizing the fact that they might lose everything over this house. But the answer, though, is that I guess we'll just have to stay. Yeah, no, it's no, not the answer. Well, he's... I understand that. Well, <laughs> well right, from I, a get, financial... I get it. Like they, they're stuck. Yeah. They can't sell. They can't, if they can't flip it then that's their house, right? They have to stay there. Right. Now, the other recurring theme, this house clearly has an effect on people. So whether we're going to call it psychological, whether we're going to call it supernatural, uh, the Dudleys, the Hills, the Cranes, I mean, do we buy into Stephen's theory that the Crane family and all of these 
problems we have is owed to genetics. Well, you know, we could potentially say that because, like I said, there's yeah. Okay, first I just want to say that the 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 Nell's death is to me that that says it. Like this is definitely there are definitely supernatural forces at work here. It's not entire. I'm not saying it's not psychological at all. I'm just saying it's not. Like there is definitely supernatural element, right? There there are. I don't know to call it ghosts, but there, there's something beyond that which we understand happening. You know, but so the, but there's a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, as we've been, you know, we're going back and forth on this. There's a lot of stuff that, that can be. But also if you, you know, Hugh and Theo at the same time both saw Olivia crawling at them at the end of this episode. So I doubt. Absolutely, they, right. They How do you explain same, that? Right, exactly, right. They didn't have the same psychotic reaction together at the same time like they saw something there was something there that they saw um so you know there there is without a doubt there is a a supernatural element at work here no question about it right because it's not like when luke is at the grave and he sees them but steven doesn't right see yeah exactly that we could still explain away you know it was just luke seeing it but like i said we know hugh and theo both saw uh, olivia there Right. Now, the Mr. Dudley brings up that story about he and his wife and, and, you know, they lose the child. But he talks about Hill House at night as if, uh, you know, whether it's the nightmares that occur when they're sleeping there. But he makes a, a, a really a strong point that we serve dinner and we're out of here. We'll, we'll deal with the dishes the next morning. Pretty extreme, but is there something about Hill House at night as opposed to the day? And I, I guess thinking back, it does seem as if most of these occurrences have been at night. Yeah. Is that just a narrative device on the writer's part? I don't know, but still it's pretty creepy. Well, yeah. I mean, clearly, I mean, you're not going to have like a really good haunted house movie or horror movie set in the bright daylight, you know? It's yeah. just that's not when creepy things happen, and um, so it's at night. But you know, Mr. Dudley just kind of gives us like, yeah, yeah, like you said, like a narrative justification that the, you know the house kind of is you know whatever is happening there happens at night. Um, but really, like pretty powerful. Like you know, Mr. Dudley has hardly said three words this whole episode, and now he he probably spoke for like five minutes uh, with that whole monologue there. Um, with nice Massachusetts accent and the word scattered too. Yeah. I like that. Well, and what was also so great about it is that he understands Hugh already told him, no, you're right. It isn't any of your business yet. He goes on because he understands how important it is to enlighten Hugh Crane about Hill house. Yeah. So, okay. Question for Mr. Dudley. This place is so terrible. Why on earth are you working there? Well, I guess as somebody that hasn't seen episodes eight, nine, and 10, I got to believe there's something still to come that will answer that. Uh, Maybe not, but uh, yeah, again, it goes along with why don't the cranes just up and leave? Yeah. I mean, the Cranes, I you know, they have, like, financial interest in this. But, I mean, Mr. Dudley seems like a pretty handy guy. I assume you could get work, like, elsewhere, except for the place where you were born, married, and grew up. Like, dude, get out a little bit. Well, go visit Connecticut, how about? You know, try Canada. Just go out, see some place outside of your little world, right? Because, um, yeah. As far as we can tell, like, I mean, they just, they, they lead to pretty insular existence, it seems. Right. Now the Red Room's influence, again, recurs throughout this episode. And we, you know, we get to that final scene where the door is ajar. And uh, of course our question, how did it open? But what I want to talk about for a second, and, and we've, mentioned it in passing so far is olivia's appearance to hugh mm-hmm. what do we make of that i mean is it as simple as he explains to luke that 
you know, I see your mother. I talk to her. I think it's Luke. Now I can't yeah. remember which one it's of Luke. his children he yeah, was. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, is it that simplistic? Is he just simply saying, you know, I see your mother? Does he literally mean he sees her? I mean, that's the impression we get as the viewer. Mm-hmm. But is it a situation where he's just talking to his dead wife like a, a lot of widows and widowers probably do at least for the first few years or yeah. months or whatever um, or does he just literally see her the way we see her i think especially when when he that kind of confirmed when he told luke there that well he he's cognizant that what is happening with olivia is a psychological thing for sure so that i put firmly in psychological um he's aware of it he he's not you know, it's not like he, he thinks anything's supernatural is happening. And when you really think about the things that Olivia said, like, first of all, this is very idealized Olivia, right? And the blue dress, and she looks perfect and beautiful. She's just, and here's the thing, like, I, I got the feeling even earlier that Olivia was just saying the things that Hugh already knew, right? Like when he's yes. in the car with uh, Shirley, and Olivia's telling him, don't, don't talk anymore. Or when he um, goes to sit down next to Luke and Olivia tells him, you know, it's okay just to sit here. You don't have to say anything. That's, that's just his own, that's just completely, I, I think, his own mind uh, telling him what well, he already knows. You know? So I don't think the Olivia he sees really doesn't offer any kind of extra insight uh, that – of, of things that Hugh is not already perceiving. Now, if she had said something like, oh, look out for that car coming behind you or something like that, okay, maybe, you know, that, that might seem like this actually some kind of spirit of Olivia. But I think pretty clearly it's not. It's just a, you know, like you said, a, a, a psychological manifestation of his grief, that he, a coping mechanism. Right, and, and she supports as you said, what he already knows to be the right thing to do or the right thing to say and, and just kind of boys up his spirit in that case. Now, we've talked a lot about Shirley and Stephen as the two oldest children and Stephen's lack of a relationship with his father that, that he really, as Theo tells her father later, I should have met you halfway – Stephen and Shirley are completely unwilling to do that. Right. And if I made you decide, well, who's the most unpleasant crane child? Shirley would probably get my vote at this point. And I get why she doesn't want to get in the limo with her husband. And I understand why she doesn't want to get in the limo with Theo. Right. I I get that. But riding in the car with her dad, just... You're an adult. You're a parent yourself. How can you not understand, having lived through it, what a difficult time your father has had? Um, and fine, you don't want to embrace him open arms, but darn it, just you don't have to be that mean and that, I don't know, maybe, yeah. maybe I'm wrong. Well, see, I mean, here's the thing, because I mean, I know, um, you know, my wife has, you know, like her, her dad left when she was at a you know at, at a, a delicate age um and you know i mean that stuff when when she gets mad about that still despite it being 30 plus years later i i got nothing to say about that you know like i can't i can't answer for that because i didn't go through what she went through but sure. i know what I she understand. went through was was pretty bad you know so um it's that you know, like all those things for young kids who don't like quite understand the world as it is anyway, all they understand is feeling abandoned or hurt or left out and they're grieving for their mother and all this stuff. And then, and then their dad's gone and they're living with someone else and all these things kind of happen. Once. So, I mean, I get Shirley's bitterness there. I get Steven's bitterness too, because they're, they're the oldest ones and they could probably the ones who would most be able to have a concept of how their dad should have been acting or what he should have been doing right whereas the younger ones probably just were like reacting to whatever was happening in front of them 
But um, now, are you kind of referring to the fact that he left them with their aunt? Yeah. Okay, and, and I understand that, and I, I guess we would have to say that at some point Hugh should have gone back to talk to his children. Look, Stephen was old enough. He was working with his father in the basement. I mean, he he heard the scratching in the wall. Uh, you know, all of the kids lived through that. But that said, I mean, as a few years transpired, yeah, he probably just thought, well, I'll talk to them about it next year. And yeah. then that year goes by, and then yeah. another year, and next thing you know, it, your kids are 30. Yeah. Yeah. So... All right, now, uh, let, let's talk about the episode itself, some of the things we haven't already talked about. And one of the things they do is frame the episode with Hugh being questioned by Chief Beckley. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you like that technique? It's not unique, you know? No, oh, no. Um, but I, I do kind of like the you know, police interrogation. Well, let's go back. What happened? Everything though. Of course, he's not telling the police anything. He's, you know, it's just kind of going on in his head. There is something that the chief says in that interrogation room. Did you catch it? Is something, well, well, I didn't catch the first time. Okay. Well, the one thing that I do want to bring up is that chief Beckley makes clear, you know, you're not under arrest, but you know, we've got that second body. That's it. The the other body. Like, what other body? Now, well, is he referring to the bricked-up body? Because if that's the case, well, what the hell's that got to do with anything? <laughs> that was 1948. Clearly, that has nothing to do with Ukraine. Yeah, I don't think so, that's what he's talking about, though. Okay. So if that's the case, then, yeah, Hugh, you you got three hours that are unaccounted for, and that's kind of a problem. And I like chief beckley's approach and in that respect i I guess i felt that it was a lot of time for that one reveal if you will the 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 mention of a second body yeah no i don't think Um, that's the only thing i think that they just kind of snuck that in there like the first time i saw us i didn't even catch that line at all so well but i mean outside of that beckley talks to him about the unaccounted time and hey i want you to walk out of here without any suspicion over you and and but that's basically it so right well that's what uh, cops say right i mean that's how they get you oh yes right? of course of like course. every single person listen here's public service announcement you ever find yourself in the police interrogation room keep your mouth shut and call a lawyer plain and simple do not say a thing don't let them tell you how things will be easier for you if you talk okay i'm not speaking from personal experience here i just know right like you can say stuff that would incriminate even if you're innocent you might incriminate yourself don't talk get a lawyer right don't do it so like that's you see the police kind of like soft playing you well let me get you some coffee you just sit here like well yeah just sit there and stew and think about you know things and get nervous it's just it's it's just you know a, a, a yes it seems like he's being nice but he's just trying to break you and to get you to tell him but you know what is you gonna tell him you know except for what well, apparently he already said the house is haunted exactly and uh, beckley brings that up i, I want to get back to what you said about the house and even though he doesn't articulate it Exactly, we know that's what Hugh must have said, that the the house killed her. And, of course, we know how that sounds. Shifts back and forth between the Hill House damage that Hugh and his wife and and Steve are trying to fix, and then, of course, the service for Nellie. But one, one of the things that, again, I don't know how we explain it, uh, he and Stevie are in the basement. He sees all the water damage, and, of course, well, I can fix that. They break a hole in the wall and they hear that scratching. Well, how do we explain the scratching? I, I mean, in retrospect, we know what it's supposed to be. I guess the dead guy in there scratching to get out. But come on, what? what it's not rats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, again, supernatural. And you know, it's. I mean, this is. Can can we say this is the the tall guy with the the hat 
Because he has a cane oh. in there with him. Oh, you're right. I did notice that on the rewatch. So That's right. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know, but I'm thinking that's who it is. He had like a trowel and a cane in there with him. Um, like why, if you're bricking yourself up, do you really need the cane? Like where are you going? <laughs> where are you, well, you know? and, so and, I think they, they threw know, that in there so we could identify, you know. Yeah, oh, that's a good catch. I didn't even make that connection. Uh, what I did connect it to, of course, is the Edgar Allan Poe short story, A Cask of sure. Amontillado, which it's a reversal. He, the guy doesn't brick himself in. His, his friend bricks him in after he gets really drunk, but still the horror. Or, of, or out by you, there's actually a very famous ghost in Carroll County of Lee Masters. Is. You ever hear about Lee Masters? No. Yeah, this is what we would do to freak ourselves out. We'd go to like, you know, the, the I, I don't even know where it was. It's somewhere Lee Masters is supposed to show up. But this guy who, you know, Maryland, it was a slave state. And this guy, like this, he literally did this, would brick his slaves up in the wall. Like they went and found, you know, the, the bones there later. So apparently he's still wandering around Carroll County and everything. So, yeah. Wow. Creepy. Yeah. But, very creepy. Uh, it then leads us to the question, what on earth possessed you to brick yourself up? Is there something that was so horrific that that was your only option? Did you use the word possessed purposefully there? Um, no, <laughs> I didn't. Actually, <laughs> I like how you but, said that. Uh, what possessed him? I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, again, like Hugh, the last guy who lived there. You just found him. He bricked himself up inside the wall. Maybe it's time to cut your losses, bro. Well, and then it even goes back to when he brings that expert in and the guy says, well, have you checked all the sources of water? Well, yeah, I've checked everywhere except the red room. It's locked. Well, that's probably your source. Yeah, well, we don't have a key. And I'm thinking like, what? (laughs) We've said this all along. And, okay, at first I'm thinking, like, just break the damn door down. And well, we get that scene where he's that, got the yeah. crowbar. And he tries. And, and okay, fine. It's, it's a well-reinforced door. And I understand you want to flip the house, so you don't want to destroy the door. It just adds more cost. But they do have these things called locksmiths. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure if you pay them, they'll come out and open your door. Yeah. That's uh, just me. Well, right? but you know, like if, if nothing else about Hughes, he seems like a pretty cheap bastard, you know. So, well, uh, so he's probably not willing to uh, pay for the locksmith because he can fix it, right? He can do it himself. Well, that's true. Um, now I want to go back to that incident when Hugh and Olivia are in bed, and he wakes up. And he wakes up and, and, you know, ordinarily wake up and your wife's straddling you. It's maybe not such a bad That's thing. That's good. But the screwdriver at your throat. Bad. That kind of puts a damper on things, <laughs> at least for me. Yeah. I, I don't know about well, you. Probably for a moment there, he was like, yeah, sweet. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> and then it's like, we need to talk. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, you, you think? <laughs> but yeah. that leads to to that conversation about the blueprint that she denies drawing. And I mean, we understand that, that I don't want to say she's losing it, but she is little by little. Well, that's what Steve said, right? Yes. But she has superimposed the footprint of their forever house onto the blueprint of Hill house. I'm not sure how that's significant. I, I, I mean, I'm sure it is, but is it reinforcing the fact that ultimately Hill House is their forever house because it will forever haunt them? Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, it seems. I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I mean, obviously, I'm still trying to sort out. Like, really, I mean, I get the significance of the forever house. It's like this ideal place it's this place where everyone's going to be happy everyone's going to be safe it's all going to be good there um but unfortunately in order to get to that we have to we have this this hell house yeah that uh that is is we are attached to but yeah i like that i I like that idea there dave yeah 
Right. And, you know, we heard about Mrs. Dudley's dreams and hearing a baby crying. And then, in fact, he says, well, he went and he heard it as well. And and you could chalk that up to psychological grief. And, okay, that's fine. But then Olivia mentions to Hugh that she hasn't been sleeping well, constant dreams. And she says, it just snuck up on me all of a sudden. And that's understandable. So at, at this point, you know, she, she's kind of teetering on the edge, which then takes us to the service for Nellie. Again, it, it's bad enough to be a member of the Crane family, but my goodness, think about being one of the guests and seeing all this stuff going on around mm-hmm. you. you know, I mean, we see, we've talked about Hugh talking to uh, his dead wife, Olivia. The other kids start to notice it. And I don't think they really even take the time to understand what it is that their father's doing. I mean, he explains it to Luke, but the rest of them, it's right. And right, right or wrong, they just just blow their father off at this point. But, yeah. but the scene I really loved, probably my favorite scene in the whole episode, is when Hugh goes to see Theo. Mm-hmm. And at first, we're not even sure she's going to invite him in. And of course, she does. And then I fucked up last night, daddy. Yeah. And just using that word daddy. Mm-hmm. Oh, just so powerful and, and just full of, I don't want to say necessarily forgiveness, but at least understanding yeah. the first step towards forgiveness. And and that's when she apologizes for not making an effort. I should have met you halfway. Just oh, it's such a powerful scene that to me, that if the other four could have embraced this kind of a, a uh, an approach, maybe the family wouldn't be in, in such a downward spiral. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think part of it is he catches Theo at a pretty low point. Like, you know, she's getting kicked out of the house. Apparently tried to get with Kevin the night before, or I don't know. You know, I mean, things are just a big, huge mess. And she understands that, you know, she doesn't try to justify herself or, or, or blame Shirley. I mean, she just, she owns that what's happened is her fault. So, you know, Hugh catching her at this vulnerable moment, I guess, probably works in, in Hugh's favor, you know, or I don't know that he's trying to work a, a game here, but just that, you know, she's more receptive to anyone at this point who wants to be near her and wants to be nice to her. Well, especially after the scene that we'll, we'll see later with uh, her girlfriend, it's like, what are you doing here? Oh, read that your sister died. I yeah. Like I'd be here I, for I you. Want to go to a funeral, but I thought it'd be nice if I did. Yeah. Yeah. That is, you know, I, I mean, I get, she's like super hungover too. So probably that, you know, doesn't make her more, you know, receptive to these things, but yeah, she is right. testy. Well, and, and that kind of leads me to maybe my second favorite scene when, Luke tells her you know, beer and what does he say? Beer and tomato juice. Beer and tomato juice. I've heard that before. I've never tried it. But, you know. And she says for for a hangover. And then he says, but basically the only thing that really works is heroin. <laughs> so, okay. So what you're telling me is heroin for a hangover. Yes. Okay. But he says by a mile. <laughs> yeah. And he, <laughs> right. So he's just but, like, like an addict. Like you never, you never stop being an addict, right? Like his whole life, he he's never going to not want to do heroin. There's not like at some point he's not going to feel that call. You know that's why it's so. T- I have so much respect for people who are able to to come back from from addictions like that because it's not like you know you might get clean, but it's not like the addiction goes away. You know, you're still oh, feeling sure. that constantly. So, and, and you know, we don't really know what broke Steve and Lee apart right i mean obviously all the family stuff has been going on in the background and maybe that got to be too much you know maybe he's on the road all the time promoting his books i mean we don't really know but she 
embraces Hugh in the funeral home chapel and then just walks right past Stephen. Yeah. And I started thinking, well, did she embrace Hugh just to get a dig in at Steve or did she really do it because she felt that would help Hugh? And I don't, I don't really know. I don't have an answer, but it is something that occurred to me. And well, I'd like to think it was because she felt he needed a hug and, and, but um, I, I also, I think, I don't know if we've seen anyone else hug him. No, like I don't, I don't think, think any of his either. children have. So, um, you know, that's I think that was telling as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, Cheryl reads a poem during the service, and I don't really know what to make of that. Yeah. On the one hand, I started thinking, all right, I should do some research on what that poem is. But <laughs> no, it, it's yeah. I, I get it. You know, you're not really dead; you're just away. Well, no. Your sister's dead, and you own a funeral home. You should understand that. And yes, she'll always be alive in your mind and all that. Okay, fine. But I don't know. There was just something about the choice of that poem, about Shirley reading it, because she's just so filled with anger at all of them. Right. And which made Luke standing up and telling his anecdotal uh, story just it, yeah. it just kind of made me forget about that poem that Cheryl read right well so so Shirley reads something not that she wrote right yes. um, so she she reads something from someone else so there is that that level of like it's almost like a little synthetic I mean that might be not the word exactly I'm looking for but you know maybe not I can not it's not heartfelt because obviously it is, and obviously they're all grieving. They, they all love their sisters. No one who is like, you know, who feels great about this, um, but you know, Shirley is able to kind of keep that distance, right? Whereas Luke gets up there, and you know, not unlike he does in recovery, right? He gets up in front of a bunch of people and confesses and, and tells a personal story from the heart. So yeah, you're right. There's is a big that juxtaposition of those two um, eulogies is, uh, you know, significant there. Yeah, and just he he says what she said to him, you go in there and bring my brother back. And we see Olivia beaming as he says the words and that she's really proud, but of course we understand that that's really huge. Right, right. And and then even later... um, Hugh and Stephen are saying their goodbyes and Olivia's telling him what to say to Steve, but he doesn't say the words, even though he really knows what to say. But, but even before that, Olivia tells him to finish his drink, say his goodbyes. And it's almost as if, and when I say she, I, you know, right. the, the manifestation, Again. Yeah. Uh, does she not want him to see his kids after today? i.e. does he not want to see his kids after today or is that just throwing that idea out there that dude if you do want to see your kids after today you need to do something you need to act but he probably just feels so like like helpless i understand like he can't you know so yeah i i agree because we know olivia is the his own the manifestation of his own thoughts so when she says finish your drink, you you won't have to see him again. Maybe in a year, you know that obviously Olivia would never say that. So clearly this is Hugh's thoughts, and, that, and it's sad that he thinks that. But you know he we see him trying. We see him individually with every one of his kids trying, and except for Theo, they all completely reject him. You know, so yeah. you, know, you know here's a guy who's trying and, and like. I kind of say this with my wife too, like, you know, here's a guy who's trying, maybe late, but trying, but it's just so hard. That stuff that happens is so hard to to get through, um, so hard to forget. It's so painful and so traumatic for kids that, yeah, you're trying now, but I just can't forget 
what happened before, you know? And then, you know, we, we mentioned at the beginning of the discussion, uh, she and Hugh, Theo, that is, see a dead Olivia, I guess that's Olivia, crawling on the floor. Yes. Right, because we then, saw her, it's course, the same Olivia we saw, you know, trying to pull Luke into the grave with, with Nell. Right. So it goes back to the question, who opened the red room door? Who destroyed the forever house? As he tells uh, Cheryl, we found it like this. We didn't do it. Yeah. What would be our motivation? So who did it? Did Luke do it before he leaves after he steals the purse? And I guess the car key, I mean, he steals the credit cards and the car keys and uh, who knows what the heck he's got going on. But Uh, I mean, after the last couple episodes, you don't think a living person wrecked the forever house, do you? No, I don't. Especially when Olivia's effed up creepy ghost is crawling around all over the place. (laughs) Uh, But uh, anything else you want to bring up before we get into Fred's feedback? Oh, oh, uh, Hugh taking the medicine. What's that about? Do you see Um, he has like pills? Was that in the hotel room? It was at the eulogy. at the at the At the service. Hmm. He like... He has like a couple, he has like a pills that he keeps with him, which is the cliche TV um, heart, heart pills, right? Like okay. that's always like, oh, where's, where's my pills? Yeah. Like, so, and he washes it down with a whiskey, which you got to respect that. Well, at least he's not one of these people on TV that take the pills without anything. Right. Yeah. He looked like he was going to, cause he like, you know, shoves it, but uh, yeah, he washed it down with a little bit of whiskey. That's all good. Oh, well, oh, 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 yeah, just one thing. Um, so we know that that night that everything goes down is soon because of Hugh's hand, right? Yes. So we see him cut it. So right when that happened, like, oh, 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 well, the, the bad night is is just probably days away because his hand is still wrapped up in bleeding on the night everything happens. When I saw that scene the first time, I'm thinking like, all right, you're sending Stevie upstairs because you don't want him to see the wound. And then, you know, you're going to go and tell Liv, I'm going to the doctor. Oh, no, I'll just wrap it up in an ace bandage. Like, I mean, that thing looked like it needed literally 15, 20 stitches. Yeah, yeah. He sliced his hair wide open. Oh, (laughs) and then I was doing the rewatch, watching it on my laptop, and... I guess when that scene came up, I, I was like turned my head and covered my eyes, and my yeah. wife must have noticed. Like, what are you watching? <laughs> yeah, um, that, that, that that is tough to, to. Yeah, especially when you know it's coming the second time. You're just like, oh, yeah, no, no. Just even hearing it was, was yeah, bad enough. It was bad, so. yeah. Okay, well, you want to move on to the feedback? Sure. All right. Uh, so let's hear what Fred had to say about episode seven of season one. Hello, Dave and Wayne. This is Fred from the Netherlands. It's feedback for The Hunting of Hill House, Season 1, Episode 7. First off, I like Dave's tip of the week about the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in last week's podcast. Dave was perhaps inspired by one of my tweets about the series, or this is all very coincidental, and then it goes into the category of two souls, one thought. In between of my major series, I watch Marvel series and try to do this as much as possible in the so-called right order of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, aka the MCU. So last week, I picked Agents of Shields up where I paused it, which was somewhere in the middle of season one. I always post on Twitter what I'm watching and which podcast I'm listening to at that moment. And this always accompanied with a nice screenshot of the episode at hand. So I started watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on Friday the 29th of November and posted my tweet about it the next morning on Saturday. The next day, on Sunday, Dave and Wayne recorded their Hunting of Hill House episode 6 podcast where Dave suddenly started to talk about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I really was amazed by the coincidence. Or flattered by the fact that uh, you got inspired by my tweet, Dave. 
Furthermore, I'm looking forward to starting with Season 3 of Travelers next week. As preparation, I already rewatched the Season 2 finale. And I hope I can keep up with your deadline for recording because I only have the episode available on Saturday, I think. I was listening to your podcast during my cycling from work to home last Friday and I was hearing something which provoked me shouting at the both of you on my cycle. Fortunately, it was dark, rainy and nobody was around because they certainly would have thought, who is that weirdo shouting at? Everybody's gone and we see Nell with the bent neck in the back so we're not seeing what one of them sees. Right. This, now we're seeing this. Is that the one we, where we, they're facing the coffin we see here in the back? Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. How creepy was that? Well, and then the, to me, that's a check on the side of supernatural. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right. Because none of them are seeing her. We're seeing her as the objective third-person viewer. I was shouting, ha. Objective third-person viewer. What do you think? They are messing with our brains as well. So we are going to see things, just as the people in the series. No proof of supernatural, just proof of that we are getting as crazy as the people in Hill House. Wayne was, by the way, nicely right about the creepy statues in uh, episode 6. The left statue turned her head indeed. Although it was not after you left Nelly's room, but after Olivia left Nelly's room. You can have a look at the Facebook page, and I, I posted the screenshots of it. I didn't notice this at all, because everything was so dark. But taking screenshots and make them much lighter, one can indeed appreciate this. Good catch, Wayne. Nevertheless, this was all playing in Yu's brain, thinking back at the time in Hill House. So... Turning statue heads still could be something psychological. I have a little credit thing about the episode 6 podcast. Listen to yourself. Well, I'm just, again, looking at these pictures Fred sent. You know, Theo's gloves are off in the closet there. Really? Yeah. Uh, oh, you're right. Maybe suggests a, a level of maybe intimacy that was occurring there. Right, because we pointed out she had removed her gloves when she had the encounter with the girl from the bar. Uh-huh. And so, oh, good catch. Thank you. And- yeah, Wayne, very good catch. And listen to me in the episode six podcast. Quote, one other thing is notable, that is Theo is without hand gloves there. So she wants to feel something. End of quote. I still think Kevin and Theo in the closet is not what it looks like. It's just one drunk incident, perhaps. First off, I have no indication that Theo is bisexual. Secondly, they have, or better to say, had both the same secret, namely uh, taking Stephen's money. Thirdly, she is so unstable on her feet, as proven by falling from the couch earlier, that Kevin has to hold her. The only thing that's not completely clear is why she is without hand gloves there. Just after this, you were questioning something about the guy, according to IMDb Ryan, uh, who appears to Shirley, having this drink in his hand. Have a listen to one of your questions. And I guess we'd have to go back and see the context. The first time she saw the guy with the... Uh, the guy with the drink. The drink, right? Um, and I know she saw him the first time... Again, it was it was in the um, funeral home, and uh, you, you know, but I can't remember the context. But this one, you know, like after, like right after she sees her husband and her sister in what could best be described as a compromising situation, she immediately sees this guy. So, like, what's that all about? So, what is the context of the first time we see the guy with a drink in his hand? I went back to episode two to have a look at that. Shirley sees him. After the father of Max brings the blue box with the photographs of his deceased mother to Shirley so she can fix his mother. Having a better look at this box, it is the box in which the kitten was buried. Or at least a similar box. If this is the same box, why did anybody dug up that 
box after the kitten was buried in it. And why would you give that box to people who are customers at your funeral home to put stuff in for the funeral of their beloved ones? It's also the box Shirley sees when her mother with the glazy eyes appears to her in the funeral home, also in episode 2. I think this guy, this Ryan, appears to her in very stressful moments, like just having fixed her dead sister's uh, face and being confronted with her sister and her husband taking Stephen's money, to which she was very, very much opposed. And I'm still not full in the clear why she is so opposed to it. The guy always has a drink in his hand, and although Shirley is making remarks about Theo's drinking habits, it surely, like her sister and possibly her mother, had an alcohol problem herself. P.S. Nice reference in the last podcast to counterpart uh, in sense of perhaps an alternative universe. Because young Shirley was saying, I was standing here and no one of you could see me. That was all about episode 6 and your podcast about episode 6. So what the heck do I do with episode 7? All time is spent. So I just allow myself a few short remarks. In a previous podcast I said it was a kind of you episode. Well, this was the real you episode. I really like that you is still accompanied by Olivia, who really thinks along and helps him to see things in perspective. I think when she was still alive and healthy, they were a very good couple. Mr. Dudley's monologue was marvelously acted. Best quote for a geneticist in the episode by Stephen. People see things, Luke. I know all about it. I write about it. Hell, I've seen things this week, but it's not real. It's not. If you don't get that, if you don't get your shit together, like mom and Nell didn't get their shit together, you'll end up just like them. You understand? Because it's in our genes. Greetings, all the best. Fred from the Netherlands. All right, well, Fred, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. tip honestly was a result of all the Netflix shows getting canceled. Yeah. And I, I guess I feel like Marvel TV fans are, are understandably down. And as I said last time, I'm still amazed how many people that are into Marvel shows on Netflix have never given S.H.I.E.L.D. a chance. So uh, that's where that came from. Now, rewatching the Travelers finale, you know, as Fred points out, I mean, that's clearly a must. And it's, it's something I do pretty frequently. But because there were only 12 episodes in each season and because we're going to do a podcast and because it's a time travel show, I did manage over the last month or so to get in a full two-season rewatch. So I'm really psyched. I'm, That's awesome. I'm ready man. to go. Good work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, I think we've got to assume that when we see, and I'm making air quotes for see, when we see a ghost that no other character sees, supernatural is the only logical conclusion. And and I think here's where... where uh, Fred, you and I, and I think Wayne as well, are getting, I guess we disagree that, that I think, Fred, you think most of this stuff is psychological, maybe even all of it. But I, I think from a narrative point of view, that's the message we're getting is that if nobody else sees it except us, yeah. unless we've got psychological problems. Yeah, I, I agree completely that that you know if yeah we as the you know ob- objective observer you know if we're seeing the ghost and no one else sees it then yeah like whose whose you know vision is that whose whose delusion is that yeah right. ours right so either we're crazy or there there really are ghosts here yep okay now we always talk about you know those three little words. And Fred, you said the three little words that I don't like hearing. Wayne was right. 
<laughs> Every now and then, uh, anyway, you, just gotta, you just gotta buck up and say it, man. <laughs> I know, I know. But he's talking about the the statues that, that I didn't catch, and and you certainly did, and pointed it out last podcast. But you know, Fred brings up an interesting perspective. Is that a result of Hugh's faulty memory? Right. That that's a good or, point, actually. Or like blink and and on the facebook group or again maybe it was just in a facebook message with fred that he said he's never seen any doctor who so he he certainly hasn't seen blink and and in blink you know i i think the statues clearly are moving whether forward backward to the side so you know here uh, we don't know but um the whole theo and kevin in the closet and and fred seems to think that i don't want to say it's innocent but that i think fred again unless i misheard you you feel like it's about the money and my point would be well they don't need to hide in a closet to talk about the money but plus hugh remarks that her feeling down theo that is doesn't have to do with the money and she agrees so in other words she's acknowledging that her fucking up wasn't about the money well then the only thing that's left is she's in a closet yeah um i i, and I think again like we talked about how theo kind of owns this so especially like seeing poor kevin the day after and he is i mean obviously he's remorseful but I think if he were actually fooling around with Shirley's sister, I don't know if he would have the brass to go and and show up the next day. You know, well, I know he has to be because uh, it's they run the funeral home together. But I don't know. It just and he he's like he wants to talk and everything. So I mean, it, I, I feel like if if anything, it was just a extremely drunken, confused play by theo why she would do that i don't know well kevin just needs a chance to say those magic five words it's not what you think (laughs) yeah exactly Uh, Uh, but of course he could say those five words to shirley right now he she would probably shoot him um so well right but but as fred points out i mean for the most part we only know that theo's into girls are we to think that she's bisexual as well i don't know i mean if it's not the money then what is it well again you know like again just (laughs) yeah yeah i i i I don't know it's 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 a it's a weird scene that i don't think they even needed you know like i think shirley was pissed off enough at kevin about the money that if you need an excuse for you know i mean ultimately i guess this gets Hugh, her in the car with Hugh, right? If, from what we've seen so far. Like, she won't... And, and you could accomplish that by simply what already happened the night before, um, by what they said to each other and how they treated each other, and especially Shirley and Theo going at each other, and the, the revelation of all the money. You know, all of those things would make her plenty pissed that you wouldn't have to throw in... This, which I mean, honestly, I think maybe kind of it's a silly scene with uh, you know Kevin and and Theo in the closet because I don't think like Kevin has any intents here, and we yeah you know, we know Shirley is not into guys, or I guess we don't know for sure that she's not into guys too, but we've seen like little indication of it. So you know why why do that? You know why, why you know I don't know. No, why even have that scene? As if Kevin didn't already have enough to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So now the other thing Fred brings up, Ryan's appearance to Shirley, and, and, you know, he points out whether it is a result of stressful situations, and, and I certainly agree. But I think the thing that really bothers me about Shirley seeing Ryan in these stressful situations is her refusal, inability, whatever, to acknowledge that, you know, I'm seeing things. I'm seeing something. And I've been putting down my siblings for how long over essentially the same kind of thing. 
maybe I, I need to be a little more sympathetic. Well, right. And maybe. Maybe she'll become more sympathetic, but right now, that's what I would like to see out of her. Yeah, well, self-righteousness is not a uh, attractive quality, right? No. And, uh, and she's got it in spades. Now, again, I do, I do sympathize with Shirley, like a lot, you know, but like her whole, you know, thing where I don't want to take the money from Stephen's book, which means the rest of you can't take the money either and you know like for example like you know like theo has a good point that paid for my grad school that paid for my life you know like who is shirley to you know she's like you know theo's it's good money so surely imposing her own will on everyone else because this is what i want to do so the rest of you are going to do it it's just crazy she's way too self-righteous but there's something there like if if nothing else, Ryan seems to be an indicator that that there's 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 a chink in the armor somewhere. Yes, yes. And now she has to acknowledge that and figure out what to do about it. And then uh, the last thing that that Fred brings up, and I absolutely love the Hugh and Olivia sequences. I almost don't see how anybody could not. They're a wonderful couple. What a tragedy and. I don't know that that's you know i i suspect we're going to see more of them but yeah just yeah. i agree with you fred i love that yeah so yeah absolutely um so good stuff fred um so wayne what are you giving this episode for a letter grade so i think maybe a b plus on this one ah we agree you know it's funny because i i get the feeling ordinarily through the course of the podcast since we've been assigning letter grades i feel like you're a little more strict than i've been but i think with hill house i think i've been more strict and i'm not sure why but yeah we agree i've got b plus for this one as well so uh all right um anything else or you want to call it a day on this i think we're well we can call it a night sure but we have to hurry home though don't don't stay in hill house tonight though dave (laughs) no so you hear babies and you're gonna end up (laughs) scattered All right. Well, listen, that's going to do it for this episode of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. We want to thank you for joining us. We'd love to hear what you think about Haunting of Hill House, Travelers, anything else going on in genre TV. Encourage you to join the Facebook group. Share your thoughts with the Sci-Fi TV Rewatch community. Email Sci-Fi TV Rewatch at gmail.com. Voicemails can go via the SpeakPipe tab, which you can get through the website. And we'll be back next week to take a look at Season 3, Episode 1 of Netflix time travel series travelers but until then mother father mucker <laughs>